has been profitable for us. This morning we come to chapter 3, and uh, we're really coming to what I would consider to be the high point of this remarkable story. And you may say, well, wait a second, what about chapter 2? I mean, the, the whole story of, of the whale is a pretty remarkable part of the story. It is. Don't, don't get me wrong. The whale and everything, it's, it, it, it is a remarkable part of this story, but, but I don't think it's the most miraculous part of this story. I think Jonah chapter 3 is actually the most miraculous part of this story. I think it's far more remarkable than Jonah chapter 2 because in Jonah chapter 3, we see the power of repentance and we see the power of the word of God. Let me ask you a question this morning as, as we get started. What is the most powerful message you have ever heard? Most powerful message you've ever heard. You can answer that question in your mind. Maybe you can, maybe you can think of something that, think of a message um, that you've heard, a message maybe you listened to on the radio. Maybe it wasn't the most eloquent message ever preached, but, but it had power. Maybe it wasn't the most bombastic message that, that you've ever heard, but, but when it comes to the impact that it had on you, you would maybe say, well, that, this is the most powerful message in my heart and in my life. Maybe it was at camp as a teenager. Maybe it was at a revival service. Maybe it was just some random message where you were going through a difficult time in your life and, and the preacher or the teacher just got up and said exactly what you needed at that moment. Maybe you're unsure. Maybe it's hard to pick just one. As I try to think through one message, it, to be honest, I think it would be hard for me to, to pinpoint one message. But you see, what's interesting about Jonah chapter 3 is that Jonah chapter 3 is an extremely powerful message that Jonah gives. But get this, it's only five words long. Now, it's longer in our English translation, so if you're looking down and starting to count, it is longer in our English translation. But in the Hebrew text, it's only five words long that Jonah preaches to these people in Nineveh. And I know the guys in the back and maybe some of you are thinking, well, maybe you should try that someday, Pastor, preaching just a five-word message. Well, I'll tell you what. You respond like Nineveh does, and I'll preach a five-word message, all right? <laughs> Well, the point is this, this is a powerful, powerful message that Jonah preaches, and sometimes if we aren't careful, we'll look at Jonah chapter 3, and I think we may erroneously look at it and assume that there is only one message preached or given in this chapter, the message that Jonah preaches to Nineveh. But I think as we come into Jonah chapter 3 this morning, I think we actually see three messages preached in Jonah chapter 3. There are two other messages. There is the message that Jonah preaches to the Ninevites, but I think there's a couple other messages that, that we see here. You say, well, okay, what do you mean? What are those messages? I only see one message preached. Well, I think we also see a message that God preaches to Jonah. We find that in the first couple of verses. A, a message that God preaches to Jonah. 
say, okay, well, what's the third message? Well, the third message is a little less obvious, but, but I think the third message that we see is the message that the Ninevites give to the Lord. And we see that at the end of this chapter, that the Ninevites give a message back to God. Now, it's not an audible message. They don't necessarily say it with their words, but they say it with their actions. And I think we see all three of those transformative messages in this passage of Scripture. And this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to draw our attention to each of those three messages. Those will kind of be the three main points this morning that I want us to look at is each of those three messages. And I want us to look at them and to draw some application from them for our own lives today. So let's begin this morning by looking at the first message that I think we see in this passage, and that is the message that we find from God to Jonah. The message from God to Jonah. We read this as a chunk during our scripture reading. Now let's let's just read some smaller portions here as we work our way through this passage. Look back again at verse 1 of Jonah chapter 3, and look and see what the Bible says. It says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Right, right away, we see that this is clearly a message from God to Jonah. There's no really wiggle room here. This, is, this isn't a dream that Jonah's having. This, this isn't an impression or, or a desire on the part of Jonah. This is God's word coming to Jonah. So now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. Right, this is the message that God gives to Jonah. And I want to point out a few things about this message that I think we can apply to ourselves this morning. The first thing about this message from God to Jonah this morning that I want to point out is that this is a gracious message. This is a gracious message that God delivers to Jonah. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Now, I know that we can't really imagine what it would be like to be God, but for just a moment this morning, I want us to kind of try to put ourselves in the position of God. I say that hesitantly, but I want, to try, I want us to try to think here as if we were God. And think about everything that has happened so far in the book of Jonah. And as we think through everything that has happened in the book of Jonah, I don't know about you, but I may have been to a point where I may have said, you know what, I've had enough of this Jonah guy. I mean, God called Jonah to be a prophet. He's given him a fully blessed ministry in Israel. Remember, we talked about this back in the introduction of our, of our series. It, it's not that this is the first time Jonah has been called. God had Jonah do a pretty incredible work in Israel for 20 years. Jonah had been a faithful prophet in Israel. He got to go and deliver the good news to Israel that they were going to experience some good times, some blessings. Jonah was a faithful prophet. Jonah was probably a popular prophet in Israel because of the message that he delivered for them. So Jonah has been a faithful prophet. He's been fully blessed by God with his ministry in Israel. 
But now God comes to him and he calls him to do what would be a tremendous work in Nineveh, which Jonah should have been extremely excited for. But instead, he refused the call and he became so set in his determination against it that he actually declared that he would rather die than return to a place of blessing. And despite all of this, Jonah being, yet despite Jonah being thrown overboard to die, what does God do? Well, God graciously saves him, brings him to a place of repentance, and then speaks to a fish who spits Jonah back up on the dry land. That's what we've seen so far in this story. I mean, if you think about this, God has already done, God has already been so gracious to Jonah, what more could Jonah really expect? I mean, surely, despite God's mercy and despite God's grace in saving Jonah's life, surely at this point, Jonah has disqualified himself from continuing to be a prophet, right? We would probably tell Jonah to go home. I mean, we would be glad that he repented, but, but he's no longer useful, right? But you know what? Thankfully, that isn't God's way. Thankfully, that is in God's way. No, instead of reading about God's rejection of Jonah at the beginning of this chapter, instead, we find a God of second chances. You see, our God is the God of second chances. What a marvelous, wonderful thing that is for us. Because I don't know about you, but I need those second chances. And I know that he's given me a dozen different chances. I am thankful that we have a God that is long-suffering. We have a God that is patient with us. And get this today, this isn't something that's unusual for God. God didn't just do this. God didn't just do something special here for Jonah. God's not making an exception here for Jonah. The list is expo exponentially long of people in Scripture that God gave second, third, and more chances to. Abraham, Jacob, Moses, David, Peter, just to name a few. See, the Lord comes a second time to all who are his true, true children, and he gives us these second opportunities. I mean, have we, have we never been like Abraham where we stopped at our Harans? God has called us to a specific place, but we didn't quite get there. We've probably been there before. Or, or maybe, we, maybe we've been like Moses where we've taken matters into our own hands and we formulated our own plans. It didn't exactly turn out the way it was supposed to. Of course we have. Or maybe like, like Peter. Maybe we've even denied our Lord on occasion when we, should, when we should have spoken up for him. Does God cast us off? Does, does he disown us? No. He disciplines, don't get me wrong, he disciplines, that, that is true. But having done that... And having brought us to a place of repentance, 
He returns the second time to Jonah here and he recommissions him for service. And get this, he often will come a third time, a fourth time, a hundredth time, a, a, thousand, a thousandth time if necessary, as often as it takes. Listen, none of us would be where we are today in our Christian lives if God did not deal with us that way. The greatness of the unmerited grace of God. We deserve nothing, yet we receive everything, even when we foolishly turn from it. One commentator on the book of Jonah said this about the grace of God seen in the book. He says this, he says, We are moved to speak of Jonah's God as the God of the second chance. But honest, sober reflection compels the saint saint to speak of him as the God of the 999th chance. Such gracious mercy as as was extended to Jonah here and to David and to the thief dying upon the cross and to Peter, surely it has been granted to all believers through 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 the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Listen, understand this morning, if you're a child of God and you get into sin, you can come back to him. You can go to him and you can tell him what you can tell no one else. He will accept you, receive you, and get this, he can still use you. He's the God of the second chance. See, we we see this message that, that God gives to Jonah. It's a very gracious message. We also see this about the message this morning. We also see that it's a repeated message. It's a gracious message. It's also a repeated message. Look back at verse 1 and 2. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. Look back real quick at chapter 1 and verses 1 and 2. Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it. Get this. When the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, it came with the same commission he had received the first time. It was a repeated message, almost word for word. It was a repetition of what God had already told Jonah. It's as if God is saying this to Jonah. Jonah, I'm not going to change my mind. You're going to have to change your direction. You know, no doubt we often think when we are on the verge of running away from God and and when we are on the verge of, of doing what we want to do instead of what we know to be right, maybe this thought crosses our mind that, well, you know what, if I just run long enough and, and I just run far enough, eventually God is going to catch me. But when he catches me, maybe he'll change his mind. Maybe he'll give me a, a different command. Maybe he'll give me a, a different commission. But you know what? He doesn't. Stories told about a boat captain. Maybe you've heard this story before. He was sailing at night in foggy conditions. And he spots a light off in the distance. And that was, to him, it indicated that there was another ship that was approaching and they were going to crash head on. 
And the captain radios to this other ship, and, and the person on the other end responds, and the person on the other se- end says this. It says, listen, you need to change your course. We're on a collision course. The captain confidently replies. He says, no, I'm a captain. You should change your course. Well, the other person counters, says, well, I'm a seaman first class, and it's your responsibility to change course. And as this conversation escalates, the captain asserts, he says this, the captain says, well, I'm on a battleship. Change your course. And the response comes back from the other person who says this, well, I'm a lighthouse. Change your course. Listen this morning, God's a lighthouse. God's a lighthouse. He's the unmovable place. We're the ones that have to move. We're the ones that have to do the adjustments. Can I ask you a question this morning? What is God repeating in your life? What is being repeated in your life that you know you're supposed to do? You know you need to get right. Listen, if God is repeating something in your life, it's already at the urgent stage. Why try to resist it? Because learn that if you run away from God, sooner or later, he's going to catch up with you. And when he does, you'll have to face the very same thing that you're running away from. Listen, you're not going to change God's plans, but he will change your plans. See, this was, a, this was a gracious message from God. It was a repeated message from God. And the third thing we see about God's message to, Do, to Jonah is that it was an obeyed message. This is an obeyed message. Remember the first time the message came from God to Jonah, Jonah ran. But look at chapter 3, verse 3. It says, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Jonah arose, he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Finally, after having learned the consequences of running away, Jonah obeys God. And that's great. But get this. As we think about the circumstances that Jonah finds himself in, it surely would have been a whole lot easier for Jonah to have just obeyed the first time. You know, you know what I mean? I mean, and, and you know what's true? That's always the case. It's always easiest to obey the first time. The best time to obey is today. The, the second best time is tomorrow. The best time is today. The easiest time to obey is today. Listen, I'm not saying that obedience is is always easy the first time. Sometimes it's not, but you will never have a better opportunity than today. Because it never gets easier on the second chance. Proverbs 13, 15 reminds us that the way of the transgressor, transgressor is hard. Jonah was called by God to leave his hometown of Galilee and to go to Nineveh, which was 550 miles away. He could have packed his bags. He could have secured an animal for the journey. He could have planned the journey. I mean, after all, he did all of that to go to Joppa anyway. 
Now, would, have been, would it have been an easy trip? No. It, but it would have been a lot easier than it is now. You say, well, what do you mean? Why? Why? Well, where is he now? Well, he's on the side of the ocean, the side of the Mediterranean Sea, a lot further from Nineveh than he was back in Galilee. With a lot of whale guts all over him. No bags that he can pack. No carry-on luggage. And he has to find some way to get to Nineveh all by his lonesome. He obeys, and I'm glad he obeys, but just understand this. When we delay our obedience, we make obedience harder. God still gives us the grace and the strength to do it. Don't get me wrong. Praise God, he's gracious. He still provides the strength to do it. I'm glad he obeyed, but I'm telling you, the best time to obey is immediately. In fact, just this past Wednesday with our young people, and I've preached this message to our young people in the past as well, but I preached a message to our young people on Wednesday night on obedience, and we defined obedience this way, doing what I'm told to do, when I'm told to do it, with the right heart attitude. Or, Or we put it into three simple words, I need to obey quickly, sweetly, and completely. Jonah had to learn that. Obedience means now. Obedience means all. Obedience means with a smile. I don't know if Jonah had a smile or not. The, you know, I can't see his face, but, but he seems to at least at this point have the right attitude. So finally, we have Jonah doing these things as he obeys the Lord's message. And, and listen, this is something that we should covet for every true Christian. Too often we try to outguess or outmaneuver God. We try to, can I, can I put it this way? We try to outbutt him, but God. Back in Jonah chapter 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. God told Jonah what to do. The Bible says, but Jonah. Too often we try to outbutt God. Listen, there's no point. Our response should be obedience. Did God say it? Then let's do it. So the first message we see in this passage is the message from God to Jonah. The second message we see, and and this is kind of the obvious message of this passage, the second message we see is from Jonah to Nineveh. The message that Jonah preaches to Nineveh. Look at beginning in verse 3. It says, So Jonah arose... And he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey. Now, that doesn't mean that it took three days for Jonah to get to Nineveh. It means that it would take three days to walk around the city of Nineveh. Now, some scholars have sometimes objected to this on the grounds that, that we, we have this information that, that has been furnished about the city that, that it doesn't seem like it's that big of a city. Well, it's likely that the walls of the city were not necessarily that big. However, as we understand from history, when, when we talk about a city, there are suburbs and, and, and there's farmland that are outside the walls of the city. So when Jonah chapter 3 here is talking about a three days journey, it's talking about the entire expanse of Nineveh, not just inside the walls. The city was large. The circumference of the inner walls 
was about seven and three-fourths miles just inside the walls. So a three days journey, it meant one of two things. It either meant that it took three days to walk all the way around Nineveh, or perhaps it means this, and this is what I believe, that it took three days to walk all the way through to get from one end of the population to the other end of the population. That's what would be a three-day journey. And watch what the Bible says in verse number four. So it would take a three-day journey to get from one end of the population to the other end of the population. Verse number four says, And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out. So what does Jonah do here? Jonah gets to the edge of the city, and we may think, well, that seems to be a good place to start preaching. Why? Well, because I have an escape hatch, right? I mean, if things don't go well, remember, this is, this is a violent people group. They were known for their violence. So if, if things don't go well, I can get out of here pretty quickly. I don't want to do my preaching in the middle of the city because then I'm kind of surrounded and there's no way out, but that's not what Jonah does. The Bible says that Jonah goes into the city a day's journey. So what's that tell me? Well, it tells me if it takes three days to go from one end to the other end, Jonah is basically smack dab in the middle of the city. That's some boldness. You know, this is kind of a parenthesis here. Have you ever wondered how Jonah got a crowd for preaching? Have you, have you ever thought about that? I mean, he didn't have a loudspeaker. He, he didn't send out flyers that a crusade was coming. He didn't run out a stadium. How, how did Jonah get a crowd? I, I can't say this for sure, but, but I'm just kind of surmising here. Remember where Jonah has just been. Jonah has just been in the, welly of a wh- uh, the belly of a whale for three days. You realize that there's actually other times in recorded history when men have been swallowed by fish and lived to tell the story? Dr. Harry Rimmer actually told about seeing a man who had spent two days inside a fish before they discovered him alive. And this man was actually put on display in London as the Jonah of the 20th century. And when Dr. Rimmer interviewed this man two years after this, the event happened, he says that this man still didn't have a hair on his body, and his skin was a yellowish-brown color. We can understand that, right? I mean, the, the gastric juices of the fish had reacted upon the individual as the fish tried to digest him. And those chemicals were bound to have an effect on him. No doubt this happened to Jonah. And you can imagine the color of Jonah's skin, and you can imagine how he must have looked as he walks into the city of Nineveh, and he stops at a corner, and probably the crowd is gathering around, and they're like, brother, what happened to you? And Jonah tells them, I'm a man from the dead. A fish swallowed me because God sent me to tell you a message, but I tried to run away from him. What a great introduction to his message. Listen, people didn't ridicule Jonah's story. because They listened to him because they saw 
the evidence of God's power on Jonah. Again, I'm surmising here a little bit, but, but I think there's maybe some truth to this. Look back at verse four. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, yet 40 days and Jonah shall be overthrown. Again, in Hebrew, it's five words long. But yet, as we will see as we continue, this was a powerful message. What makes this such a powerful message? What, what, what makes this message powerful? Is it, is it when, well, what makes any message powerful? I mean, is it when a preacher speaks with a really loud voice or, or when he walks around a lot or, 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 you know, what is it? Well, it's none of those things. Every preacher has a different style and a, and a different way of preaching, but what makes a message powerful is who backs it up. One of the things that we see about Jonah's message to Nineveh is that it was a powerful message, not because of Jonah, but because this was God's message. This was God's message. Look back at verse 2 real quick. I told you that the second command that came to Jonah was almost identical. It was almost word for word to the first, but there is one slight difference. Verse 2, God says to Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach. Against it? That's not what it says here. That's what it says back in chapter 1. That's not what it says here. This time, here's what God says. This time, God says, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. See, the first commission had two key verbs in it. Go and preach. In this commission, the first verb is still the same, but the second phrase, preach against it, is changed to Proclaim to it the message that I give you. James Montgomery Boyce, he says this, I think it's profound. He says, when we remember that the greatest revival in history followed Jonah's doing precisely that, preaching God's message, we may reason that the spiritual life of our own time would be quite different if only those words were followed by the thousands of preachers who fill our pulpits each Sunday. They preach, no one doubts that. But is their sermon the message God has given them? Is their preaching that which he has bid them proclaim? He continues, he says, Today God's ministers are called to proclaim the message of the Bible, embodying all the counsel of God, but many consider this unsophisticated or old-fashioned. And so they substitute the supposed wisdom of men. Their words lack power, and they bring judgment on their, own, on their own heads. You see, what makes a message powerful is the one who backs it up. And listen, that is why it's incumbent upon preachers. And can I say this? Uh, I'll be hard on myself, but it's also incumbent upon teachers. I, I think I could say all Christians because we're all called to share God's word. It's incumbent upon us to give the words of God. Why? Because God is the one that backs up his word. God doesn't back up my word. He backs up his word. So what's happening here is Jonah only gets five words, but each word is spoken with the power of God behind them. 
Each word is, is specifically from God. God said, Jonah, say this. And when Jonah says this, God says, this is what I wanted you to say, and now I'm going to add all my power to back up this message. Oh, that God would back up what's being taught here at this church. If you teach a Sunday school class, if you teach the children, if you teach uh, our adults, it's, it's always important that our lessons be laced and based upon the word of God. Because it's the word of God that makes the difference in people's lives. It's the word of God that is powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's not about my philosophy. It's not about funny stories. It's not about some cute little pop of psychology or some kind of anecdote. It's none of that. It's the word of God that makes the difference in people's lives. And Jonah's message was powerful because it was God's message. But I think we also see that Jonah's message was powerful. Get this, this may not make sense, but I think Jonah's message was also powerful because it was truly a powerful message. It was powerful because it was backed up by God, but it was powerful because it was truly a powerful message. You say, what do you, what do you mean by that? Well, I simply mean this. Jonah himself spoke with conviction. Jonah himself was convinced that God had sent him. He himself was convinced that this message was from God. And he himself had been reminded that God meant business. And Jonah was willing to stand in the midst of the most violent city in the world all by himself because Jonah respected God at this point more than he feared man. Think about that. The next time you're ashamed to share Christ at the workplace or to introduce Christ to an, ex to an extended family member or to a neighbor, we are image bearers of God and we are to identify with him and identify with the message that he gives. Jonah went in, he spoke five words from God based upon the, based upon the call of God. And what does God do? He saves the city. Scholars estimate that there were 600,000 people in Nineveh. And the Bible says that the city repented. Listen, that, my friends, is a powerful message. Why? Because it was God's message. It was a powerful message. It was also an urgent message. You remember what the message was? Look at verse 4. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. 40 days, and Nineveh was going to be gone. 40 days, Nineveh was going to be overthrown. Listen, this message began with a time. The clock was running. You say, well, that's a message of, of doom and gloom. That, that's hellfire and, and brimstone. That's not very kind of Jonah. Well, and maybe you're thinking, well, Jonah should go and offer some hope. Well, this actually is the hope. This is, this is the hope. The hope is, hey, God could clamp things down right now. God could judge you right now, but by putting them on the clock, it's making them think. By putting them on the clock, it, it, it's causing them to look at themselves. He's putting them on the clock, ensuring that this is an urgent message. 
You know, it's interesting that the number 40 in the Bible is always a number of trials, testing, and judgment. Look it up for yourself. 146 times in the Bible, you'll find the number 40. And almost invitably, you'll find that the number is associated with testing, trial, and judgment. 40 days and 40 nights, it rained on the earth. 40 years, Moses was on the backside of the desert. 40 days he spent on Mount Sinai. 40 years the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness. For 40 days Goliath challenged the people of God. For 40 days Jesus was in the wilderness tempted by the devil. We could go on for a while. I won't list all 146. And now Nineveh is being told that they had 40 days before God was going to judge them for their violence and their wickedness. God says, you've turned your back on me. I'm testing you. Time's up. You're on the clock. And listen, I'm not going to stand here and give you a date and a time because I don't know that. Jonah knew it because God told him. But what I do know is this, that we are all on the clock. The Bible says in James chapter 4, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then it vanishes away. Every day that we kick the can down the road, every day, well, I'll do that tomorrow, we're wasting our lives. That's why Paul said in Ephesians 5, 14 through 17, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Let's understand the will of God. Let's redeem the time. Let's make the most of it. Let's buy it back. That's the message. It's an urgent message. And you know what salvation is? Salvation's urgent. Listen, if, you, if you're here without Christ today, it's urgent. The Bible says, behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. That's not my word. That's God's word. If you're not right with God today, now's the time to get things right. Now's the time. There is no better time than right now. Today needs to be the day that we serve God. Maybe God is speaking to you right now. What are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it right now? So we've seen the message from God to Jonah. The message from Jonah to Nineveh. And then finally this morning, I want us to see the message from Nineveh to God. The message that Nineveh sends back to God, and I, I love this message. You've heard the phrase, your walk talks and your talk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. You've heard that phrase. Well, I'll tell you what, the actions of Nineveh spoke very loudly on that day. Watch how they respond, beginning in verse number five. It says, so the people of Nineveh believed God. What an incredible statement to find in the Old Testament. The people of Nineveh believed God. Listen, the first thing we see about Nineveh's response to God is that there was an expression of faith. There was an expression of faith. This is where it all begins. Their message to God was, God, 
we believe you. We've heard your word and we believe you. The message of God's word initiated faith in their hearts. Listen, that's what the Bible does. That's why we must preach the word of God because it's the word of God that initiates faith in people's hearts. Romans 10, 17 tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And when we read the word of God, when we hear the word of God, God does a work in our hearts. So here, here, here's Jonah. Jonah speaks the word of God and the Holy Spirit uses that word to produce faith in the lives of these Ninevites and they respond by saying, God, we believe. How do we know? How do we know that they believe God? Well, obviously the Bible says it. But what if the Bible didn't say it? What if the Bible never said they believed God? Could we still know it? I think we could. I think we can still know. We can know it by their actions. We know that they believe God by how they respond. You see, there was first an expression of faith. They believed God. But then we also see that there's a confession of sin. Look at verse number five again. It says, so the people of Nineveh believed God proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. They put on this sackcloth. Sackcloth was, it was like a rough goat's hair. It was like a burlap sack, right? It's not exactly comfortable clothing. You're not, you're not going to go to the store and buy uh, sackcloth to wear all day. It's something that would irritate it. It, it. it would bother the skin. You say, well, why did they put it on then? Why would they wear it? Here's why. Because it reminded them that they needed to be irritated. That they needed to be reminded about the sin that was festering in their lives. And the Bible says that those from the greatest to the least did this. I mean, the richest guy in town did it, the poorest guy in town, the most well-connected guy in town, the least connected guy in town, the talented politician, everybody did it. The slave did it. In fact, look at verse 6. Then the word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat in ashes. Even the king, even the king did this. The king of Nineveh arises from his throne. He lays aside his robe. Those are the symbols of authority. His throne and his robe. He lays them aside. And he covers himself with sackcloth and ashes. And then he uses his influence, verse number seven. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Wow, so so Jonah is preaching, but get this, now he's making the newspapers. Right? His message is, is on the internet. It's going out in emails now. The king is sending out this message that Jonah's preaching. It's on the move. The Bible continues saying, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock. Listen, this king is serious. The king's like, our country is going to get right with God, and that means even the cats. Right? If we had a revival here in America, there would be no cat getting right with God. But, but they're applying this to beasts here. Watch this. The, um, Continue reading here, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. 
Do not let them eat or drink water, but let, them, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Now, why would the king say put sackcloth on animals? That seems weird. Why would the king say the animals should fast too? Is it because the animals have sinned? Well, no. I think the point is this. The animals represented the economy. These people live in an agricultural society, and animals are the ones that plow the fields. Animals are, are, are the ones from which they get their milk and, and, and their meat. Animals are ones that signify the strength of their economy. And what the king is doing, the king is saying this. He's saying, listen, nothing else matters right now. Our GDP, it, it doesn't matter now. I don't care what happens with inflation right now. Gas prices, they can go wherever they want to go. I don't care how well the grocery stores are stocked right now because we need God. That's what the king's saying here. I'm going to tell you something. When Christians get to the place where those things are less important, and don't get me wrong, they're important things. I'm not trying to be insensitive, but they're less important things than we need God. That's our pressing need. We, we don't need better gas prices and more food. Those would be nice. But we need God. That's what we need. The king continues, look at verse 8. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. What was Nineveh's expression to God? It was an expression of faith. God, we believe you. And because we believe you, because we see ourselves for who we really are, and we see you now for who you really are, Lord, we admit we are wrong. You are right. We are wrong. And Lord, we're not going to do one other thing until we have your favor, until we have your forgiveness. There was an expression of faith, an expression or a confession of sin. And watch this. We see a turning from their sinful behavior. We see a turning from their sinful behavior. Do you know what true repentance is? True repentance is a change of mind that will result in a change of behavior. You say, is repentance a change of behavior? No, repentance is a change of mind. But it will result in a change of behavior. You know what we see in the Ninevites? We see that the change in behavior was, was twofold. Number one, it was repentance that was individual. There was individual repentance here. The king says, let every one of you we often say things like, um, our, our churches need revival. That, that, that's, too, that's, that's too general. Churches can't have revival. We like to say, well, what America needs is revival. It, it can't have revival. No, America can't make decisions. Churches can't make decisions. Individual people make decisions. Can a church have a revival? Yes, but only insofar as every individual person 
decides that they need God. So we see it was individual. We also see that it was specific. The king said, each one of you confess the violence. That was the sin of the Ninevites. I'm sure there, there, there were others, but, but that, was the, that, was the, that was the thing that they were known for. They were known for their violence. They were violent. They took advantage of people. They disdained other people's lives. And the king says, confess your sin. It's so easy, isn't it, to confess everyone else's sin? It's so easy to point at at the sin we don't do and the things that we aren't engaged in. Well, look at that. Look what they did. Listen, it's not what they do. In fact, me looking at their sin is what's keeping me from God. Only my sin can separate me from my God. Repentance is when I confess my sin to God. That's revival. Revival doesn't take place in a building. Revival takes place in a heart. This is such a powerful message. There's this expression of faith, a confession of sin, a turning from sinful behavior, and then finally this morning, we see the appeal for mercy. They appeal, they cry out for mercy. Now here's the thing. God never actually told them that there was a chance. Do you notice that? He never tells them that. He just puts them on the clock. You're on the clock. He never told them that there was a chance. He just said, 40 days and it's over. That's it for you. You have 40 days, but watch what they inferred about God. And get this, this is exactly what Jonah had predicted they would infer about God. Look at verse number nine. Verse number nine, we're gonna be done. Here's what they said. They say, who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? God did. Verse number 10, then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. There is an appeal here for mercy. They say, we we don't know what God is going to do, but maybe he'll show mercy. And the Bible says that God relents. The King James says that, that God repents. You say, what's that mean? Well, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean God changed his mind because God doesn't change. Okay, we, we know that to be true about the character of God. God does not change. And other places in scripture tell us that God does not change his mind. Say, so what, what's going on here? What's it mean by repent and relent? Well, I think there's a couple things we have to understand real quick. Number one, we have to understand that sometimes scripture uses human language for God that maybe needs to be defined a little bit differently because God is not like man. For man, when we use the word repent, we mean a change of mind, a change of behavior. That's not true for God. God already knows everything. He never needs to change his mind. He never has to change. But you know what did change? The people of Nineveh changed. And you know what was true throughout all of history? That God had already promised, throughout all of history, God had promised that those that rejected him 
what would happen? They'd be judged. But those that turned in repentance, what would happen? They'd see mercy. God responded exactly like he, had resp- exactly like he, has, res- he has promised throughout the entirety of Scripture. That those that turn to him will find mercy. See, here's what we often do. Here's what I often do. I get in dire straits, and you know what? I, I, I want to do, what, what I want to do is I want to go tell God, I want to tell him I'm bad, but I'm not that bad. And, and you remember the Pharisees and, and the publicans? You see, I, w- I want to pray and say to the Lord, Lord, I, well, I'm not, I'm not like him. I, I'm grateful that, that, that uh, I, I know I'm bad and I'm not perfect, but, but I'm not like him, Lord. That, that, that's what the Pharisee said in, in his prayer. God, thank you that I'm not like him. And Lord, what I do is, is I fast twice a week and I give and I do this and I do that. And, and we think that our repentance is, is, is a barter with God. God, I'm bad, I know, but, but not really that bad. That's not coming clean. But remember the publican who was also there? What did he do? He didn't even look at God. He says, God, I, I, I can't even look at God. God, I'm so wrong. Lord, I, I just need mercy. Just have mercy. That's what I need. We need a total cognizance of where we are in front of a holy God, and that's what we see in the people of Nineveh. God, we don't deserve it. We don't deserve it, but, but what if? What, what, if, what if there's a better future? What, what if there's forgiveness? That's what the people in Nineveh are thinking. I don't deserve it, but, but what if? Just maybe. What if there's mercy? Can I tell you something this morning? Jesus took all the what ifs and he took them and he turned them into a promise. If thou shalt confess with the heart the Lord Jesus, excuse me, if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Jesus took all the wiggle room away. You know what Jesus promises you? He came to your city. He he came to your Nineveh. He's, He's no Jonah though. He's much better than Jonah. He didn't spend three days in the belly of a fish. He spent three days in the belly of the earth and he arose again. And his message for us is a message that if you repent, you trust him. That's the ultimate second chance. It's called salvation. It's called a new life. It's called a relationship. It's called a reality. And that reality can be yours today if you come to Jesus by faith. Let's pray.